Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. I'm Amber. Uh, and first things first, we have a shout out to a listener who sent us an email that really tickled us both. Oh, uh, so, so great. I'm <laughs> going to read you a snippet without any identifying information because we did not <laughs> confirm that we were going to read this. An anonymous listener <laughs> writes... Hi, all. Uh, I'm listening to some of your back catalog and just got to the Arctic episode. You described the geographic area of the Bering Land Bridge, and so I Googled it to see a map. The reviews of the Bering Strait are priceless. People complaining that they couldn't find the bridge, that there's no room to build a decent-sized bridge, and so forth. That delighted me. Uh, and of course, I Googled the Bering Strait to read some of these reviews. So before we dive into today's topic... I'd just like to share a few. Uh, so for context, these are all one-star reviews on the Google Maps page for the Bering Strait. That's an area that was once dry land connecting eastern Russia to western Alaska. It is now, as you may know if you've glanced at a globe recently, no longer dry land. Very much underwater. Uh, climate change, am I right? The climate sure did change <laughs> 10,000 years ago. <laughs> yep, so here are some... One star reviews. Some are definitely tongue in cheek. Some I'm not sure about. And that worries me. <laughs> but <clears throat> too much water. I'm more of a tropical beach guy. Very disappointing. Not straight at all. Mm, same. Mm. Menu only had salt water. Horrible service. Don't come here. They don't have good food. <laughs> Bearing straight. More like boring straight. Let's see, we have a comedian oh. on the Google. And then one and last finally, one. finally, I love this place. Cool. Great. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thank you again, anonymous listener um, and Anna, for that little treat. Uh, so we <laughs> love hearing from you. So uh, drop us a line anytime at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. How about we do an episode while we're waiting Let's for do folks that. to email us? So <laughs> we'll pass the My time while we wait for your messages. <laughs> Keep hitting refresh. <laughs> exactly. No, refresh. Push notifications on. This week, <laughs> we continue our doggy paddling to shore after finally getting our heads back above water with an episode that I wanted to tackle for a while, uh, but that I really wanted to do after last week's conversation. So um, if you will cast your minds back to a week ago or just scroll down a little in your rss feed um we discussed maroon communities and during that conversation i raised some questions about what leads one to study groups to which one has no personal direct ties and is not otherwise a stakeholder um so since raising those questions i i sort of started thinking again 
a lot more about my own educational trajectory and the various topics that that I pursued back when I was in graduate school the first time. Um, so drafting this script and revisiting work and images and scholarship um, after almost a decade in some cases has really been wild for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a particular fascination with the Neo-Assyrian Empire, uh, both because it was a contemporary of the Iron Age in the Oman Peninsula, um, and also because there was just something about it uh, that I didn't really fully interrogate. Um, but now, in the immortal words of Gautier, now you're just some subject that I used to know. So um, where do we begin? With the xylophone solo no okay we will get into the neo part shortly but assyrian what's that mean not assyrian a singular person from the syrian arab republic but assyrian from assyria we're in the area that is today northern iraq and southeastern turkey this was part of the mesopotamian world and existed first as a city-state around four thousand years ago To level set here, a city-state is pretty much what it sounds like, an independent city that economically and politically controls the area around it. And arguably religiously. Mesopotamia is Greek for between rivers. Referring strictly to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which flow southeast from the Armenian highlands to their confluence at the Shat al-Arab, a river delta that empties into the Gulf. As a region, Mesopotamia isn't just the strip of land between the Tigris and Euphrates. Tigris is the northeast one. Euphrates is southwest. Uh, It's the wider drainage basin of both of those rivers. So this area was a great starting point for supporting intensive agriculture with both rainfall and rivers that could be used for irrigation and canal construction. We've talked about Mesopotamia here and there. It's come up. (laughs) But in greatest detail in our Ur episode. So let's use that as a starting point for our tour As you may remember, Ur is further south, and much further inland now than it would have been four millennia ago when the shoreline of the Gulf was very different. Ur was on the Euphrates River as it flowed at the time. Rivers change courses. And if we were to hop on our little boat and head north-northwest, we would pass through Uruk, through Nippur, and find ourselves in the Babylonian heartland at Babylon, then Sippar. This is all southern Mesopotamia. But today's story begins in northern Mesopotamia. If we headed north from the shores of the Gulf along the Tigris River instead, we'd eventually reach Asher, which understandably is the heart of Assyria. This area had a similar trajectory of urbanism emerging with city-states controlling the economic and political and, as Amber said, arguably religious and cultural life of the hinterlands around them. Yeah, so it would have been Kor Ashur. So, so it's, it's Ashur, it, it can just be spelled like that, or you can see the S with the little carrot on the top of mm-hmm. it. It's got little bunny ears, um, and that mm-hmm. letter is a Shen. Um, hmm. So it's a sh sound. So it's Ashur. So in the late 3rd millennium BCE, all of these city-states and more existed in a delicate balance of competition until Sargon, king of the city-state of Akkad, shook things up and acquired a growth mindset. The, the Akkadian kings. <laughs> I'm trying to make it fun. <laughs> so fun. The Akkadian kings' expansionist military exploits extended into both lower and upper Mesopotamia, bringing much of the region under Akkadian control, or at least 
Acadian economic influence. Yeah. So there, so you'll find, um, one finds that there are like stele, like carved stones that can just be like installed somewhere, um, <laughs> as sort of declarations. <laughs> and so they talk about, uh, this being part of the, well, not so much billboards as if you've, if, um, um, in many countries you'll have like a, like a, uh, I'm just thinking of like in the UAE, like you'll have a poster or a banner that is sort of like the image of the sheikh. Um, mm, mm-hmm. and it'll be sure. like big ups. Thanks. This guy's so, great. So this is, so there's some of that, but there's also sort of this like declaration that like I got here and it'll be like at, like in a city or at a headwaters of something and say like, I got here. This is the, this is part of my empire. Um, but as Dibs. I have argued before, it doesn't mean that you've conquered it. It means that nobody stopped you when you went to put it up. Um, yep. And so that is, so this is part of a sort of recurring theme um, in a seriology of have we been duped by their propaganda or <laughs> like, or is Probably. Are, are we, are we looking at evidence of empire? Yeah. Um, like so, when we reconstruct the boundaries of empire. Yeah. Like, do we, do we reconstruct we it to the to? furthest yeah. extent that we find declarations uh-huh. of conquest or, or do we look for something else? It's murky. Thinking about the okay. Acadian empire is murky, but we don't have to think about that today. Not today. So when that Acadian dynasty fell off, regional power was redistributed and landed in the third dynasty of Ur, which was our focus of the Ur episode. For the record, I didn't write that one. <laughs> A few centuries later, power consolidated in Babylon, and we find ourselves well into the characteristic dynamic of Mesopotamia, in which there is an ebb and flow of power among city-states, chiefly between Babylon in the south and Asher in the north, vying for supremacy over the region and its neighbors. So, that was a whirlwind tour Let's recover by taking a quick ad break and then come back. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. (laughs) 
This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. All right. So we're back. And that was a very simplified introduction. Um, so sure was. <laughs> I, like, I, was that clear? Did that make sense? Did make sense. Do you feel, do you feel that you've been contextualized? I am Mesopotamian in that I am sitting between two rivers, ready to learn more. Hmm. Um, so if you want a fun classic read, um, that sort of atomizes this material better than a couple minutes of a podcast can, um, I do recommend Michael Roof's Cultural Atlas of Mesopotamia, um, which feels like a more grown up version of an eyewitness book. Gosh, I um, loved those. Oh, yeah. thank you for that little. Yeah. Oh. No, just oh. I'm trying to bring good memories. Um, good mm-hmm. memories like I have of reading the cultural atlas of Mesopotamia. <laughs> no, it was, it was a, a textbook for the first class I ever took. Um, and it gives the reader a really detailed look at sort of the currents of cultural and political material in the region over the millennia. Uh, from the Neolithic-ish to the fall of, to the end of the Achaemenid Persian period and arrival of Alexander the Great, which, um, <laughs> I guess is when Asia is over. Uh, cause yeah. that was sort of like the. Not interesting anymore. I remember, um, in grad school, I took a class on the archaeology of Iran, like an archaeological survey course, and we got to the mm-hmm. point of, like, the Sasanians, and I was like, what? And, like, I like, didn't realize that like there was more after there, he left. You know, there was like a good like 900 years of stuff that happened. Like, yeah. cause I thought that everybody just like, you know, like, we took a nap and then like Islam arrived. Because <laughs> like, I had not learned anything in that gap. Um, but you will continue to not know anything about that listeners. If you rely solely on me, um, because today <laughs> we are lingering in the first Today's half. Hard of the first millennium BCE, the Neo-Assyrian Empire. There are some clues in that name, like Neo, an empire, um, of what's going on there. So the first half of the first millennium BCE for everyone is around 900 to around 600 BCE. So that's first half of so like first millennium. Almost 3,000 years ago. Yeah, two and a half thousand to three thousand years ago. Um, Also, I just want to say I had to add this back in after I like wrote the script and read it again that I did not point this out at any point. So let me tell you all. Um, So Assyriology as a discipline is not limited to Assyria. Confusing. Um, Well, yeah, because I mean that's what um, I mean that's what they they looked into first. That's where it started Mm -hmm. was with Mm -hmm. Assyria. Um, but Assyriology is more generally and sort of as, um, like as an umbrella discipline, um, any, um, looking at cuneiform research, like any kind of, uh, cune- like any cultural material that is, um, uh, contemporaneous with cuneiform languages and, and writing, um, and is like generally Mesopotamian, um, and, and so you the can view of the seriology. Yeah. So one of my professors, um, 
is does Sumerian. He's the one that does like bird lists. Um, he does other stuff too. Um, one bird. <laughs> no, two it's just no, it's birds. just like like Robin, Robins, Blue Jay. Mm. Another word for Blue Jay. It's like that. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, that's sort of like good list. His thing, um, but. He is an Assyriologist, even though he, he does earlier stuff. So, um, that, so we'll be talking about Assyriologist and it just is sort of coincidental today that they work on Assyria. So that was, so we gave you like a, like a super whirlwind tour geographically. Now I will do a super whirlwind timeline. Um, and just sort of think, cause we got Neo Assyrian Empire, like compared to what? It means um, it's a reboot. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm. So the old Assyrian period refers to the emergence of the city state. So that's when Ashur emerges. Um, and then that is followed by the old Babylonian period. Um, and that. So power shifts to Babylon. As yeah. Center? So, well, okay. So power really um, uh, consolidates and emerges in Babylon. Okay. So okay. the old Assyrian period is just sort of the earliest appearance of urbanization of Ashur. Uh, so like earliest- if we're talking about like power as an entity, like that's when power first shows up. Yeah. Is- okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, like power over wider regions. Yes. So, okay. so like, and sort of like an, like kind of a more imperial expansion, mm-hmm. expansionism, I guess. Um, and so old Assyrian period is also when you have the earliest um, Akkadian documents in what could be considered an Assyrian dialect. So uh, Babylonian and Assyrian, um, people will say that stuff is written in Babylonian or Assyrian, like for a, like a more like public audience. And mm-hmm. usually they're not right. Um, because it's, there are, there, there are different dialects. And so you can have th- that's slightly different orthographies and slightly different vocabulary, but the language is Akkadian. It's closer to thinking about British English versus American English. I was English. just going to say, like, color with a U. Yeah, yeah. It's it's closer to that than thinking about, like, German and Dutch. Like, if, okay. that, if that makes really, sense. Really, really closely related. Yeah, like, there and, like, if you can read one, you, read the, you can read the other. And it has more to do with the period and the type of document, because a lot of gotcha. stuff in, um, in cuneiform, um, like, scholarship, like, cuneiform texts um a lot of it is sort of carrying through so that's why sumerian persists uh because nobody's using it and nobody can necessarily like communicate in it but you are keeping this uh sort of like religious and literary tradition alive and so it's a lot of copying like copying over time so you can have something that's written in old babylonian like the epic of gilgamesh um and you may have something that's copied over a thousand years later but it's still an old Babylonian because it has, it's sort of, it, that is sort of like having classical Arabic versus modern sure. Arabic because it's, it's sort of a style of the time. And that comes down through because it is part of a, a significant um, sort of literary tradition. Mm-hmm. So the old Babylonian period um, is when Hammurabi um, becomes the king of Babylon. And, and so, 
if you just like want to know a fact about it, it's that that is the time of Hammurabi. And then you've got the Middle Assyrian period, Middle Babylonian period, which is like also the Kassite period, which is where you get one of those weird things where it's like someone else is in control. And, uh, and I don't know much about that. (laughs) So that was always something because that's when, um, the, the, um, like power is, 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 um, held and, 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 um, expressed kind of differently. Like, I don't want to say it's a period of decline or anything like that. It's just like, things are different then. Um, like it's, it's sort of, uh, an aberration that lasts for quite a while, um, from the, the more traditionally understood, like Mesopotamian kingship kind of thing. Um, and out of that, you have the Neo-Assyrian period emerge, um, where those those kings start to think like we had an empire, let's do it again, kind of thing, um, and that's where it starts pushing, like pushing the boundaries of of the and sort of incursions into new territories, um, and then the growing their portfolio, exactly, and not dissimilar to how portfolios are grown today. In some ways. Um, and then mm. the Neo-Assyrian period ended uh, rather abruptly. Um, and the um, Neo-Babylonian period began. Um, and that ended pretty much with um, our boy, Nabonidus, who we talked about before. And if you remember, um, Nabonidus' mom, um, the, you know, the like, servant of sin. Um, there's that, I, I had mentioned that there's that sort of mystery about like his, his, uh, sort of ancestry and, yeah. and like, was she a daughter of, I think it was Ashurbanipal. And so like, is this, does he have a Syrian lineage? Right. Yeah. Basically. And so, cause he was from the North and, and all this stuff. So He's like maybe a weird guy and loves and the moon, loves that moon. So, um, so that's, so that's sort of a connection back to the Neo-Assyrian period there. But so we've talked about that period before. So that it, these are all like very murky and overlapping periods uh, because like everybody's got it's complicated. It's yeah. very complicated because Mesopotamia is not a single region. It's not like looking no. at presidents of the United States. And then that one time we like sort of had two because like one split off and like seceded. And then we had like two presidents for a minute. Sort of. And then like great. And, and then like it went back. So it's not like that. Like these are like, it's like looking at Western Europe and, and mm. thinking, well, it's like looking at like, you know, um, Italy and thinking about Italy and like you, like it Which wasn't one solidified It isn't that long ago that really were, recently. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago that you were looking at multiple, um, completely independent states yeah. that like had stuff going on um mm-hmm. and overlapped and, and things like that so that so it is it is really complicated um but i hope that gives you a sense of sort of the continuity and the complexity of the political si- situation of everybody that was brought under the yoke of ashur um, which is totally yoked yes uh but uh, more seriously the yoke of ashur is is like a was sort of a euphemism oh, no it's okay. like a, a it was a euphemism for colonization and, and sort of ah. like conquest rather um not so much colonization so um when we hear the royal epithet king of assyria king of the universe king of the four corners of the world remember that's what nabonidus had um yeah um so those four corners are up in the north subartu 
um, which is tucked up against the mountains, which is correlated with the Assyrian heartland. Um, and in the south, Sumer, um, which was a city, and by extension, the Gulf. It's the lower sea. So the lower sea is the Gulf. And then um, in the east, you got the northern coast of of the Gulf, which is what is today's Iran. That is Elam. Uh, so that was another place that, that was sort of the, the eastmost. Um, and then in the west, Martu. Um, and Martu is roughly today's Syria. And by extension, that same way that Sumer is the Gulf, uh, Martu is the Mediterranean. So the Northern Sea. So the upper and lower seas. So like he's got the whole world covered in terms of what is his, the, what is the king's. Um, so this term was, like, this epithet was first adopted during the Akkadian dynasty. Akkadian Empire? Uh, the Akkadian yeah. dynasty. Um, the four corners originally represented the furthest stretches of power, but symbolically it represents just the four cardinal directions. Um, and Western Asia as flanked by those two large bodies of water on the east and the west, and uh, the two very different geographies on the north and south, north being the mountains, south being the desert. And so it's like everything, mine, all the stuff. Um, yeah. So I think that this sort of discussion, like talking about this royal epithet, is a really um, convenient entry point into a conversation about Mesopotamian imperial endeavors and what kingship means in a Mesopotamian context, um, which is indeed an unavoidable topic if we're discussing the Neo-Assyrians. took me a lot of time to sort of like distill this because <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's beautifully crystallized ah so. thank you so things that things that you need to know about the king and kingship in mesopotamia first um the king is invincible convenient for him Gr great um, but yeah. he's still mm -hmm. human so he's not a living god the way that in egypt yeah is that is, yeah, is like, yeah, the, the pharaoh like actually a god I think so. I think, or at least like the earthly manifestation of one of, one of the gods. Yeah. So, um, sure. so the king in Mesopotamia is not, is not a god. You can't beat him. You, you cannot resist, um, uh, kingship. His, his might. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, the, the, this is a highly stratified. So like gods are, are still at the top. top. He's he's below that as human. So he is the high priest of Ashur. So uh where well, you're like, Ashur is a city. Uh yeah, so Ashur is also the like patron deity of Ashur. Um and eventually like became head of the Mesopotamian pantheon. Um and like this came like I in a course in graduate school, I asked, I was like, did anyone actually care? Like, like just like, the, would, like the patron God. Like, yeah. Like did, like did Joe Assyrian care that like, <laughs> like Enlil is out. Ashur is in, or like Marduk is out. Ashur is in. Cause remember, uh, so also Marduk is the patron deity of Babylon. That yeah. was what happened with Nabonidus where he was like, you know, tired Marduk. Wired, Wired sin inspired leaving Babylon to worship sin elsewhere. Um, so also look at all this copper. Wow. 
And, and so that's, and so that's why I said like religion, like religion. So because question mark, was it, was it because like the Oshawa lobby was sort of like, or like, (laughs) like it's, it's like thinking of it like as a cartel or something like thinking about how like there are like material things at work here too. This isn't just everybody being like, and like worshiping. It's like also (laughs) like they have, like they are in the administration, like the, the priests, uh, they're like, they're involved in the economic processes that are happening. Um, yeah. so that's, that's, so he is the, he is the like head supplicant. Like he, like he is the closest to, to Ashur. Um, and given that, given his invincibility and his, his privilege and his like unique standing, among humanity, um, he is unquestionably just in his actions, uh, because he has Ashur on his side. So like anything, like he is the rightful ruler of everything. And right, so it's so just anything a, that he does is like either mandated or sanctioned by yeah, Ashur. Yeah. Because if, if, um, if it weren't, he wouldn't be doing it. Well, yeah. Obviously. Um, so, so that, so this, this philosophy is informed by historical sources, like the official annals of various kings that will say, you know, like the, um, for the new Assyrian kings, the, the annals are often accounts of campaigns, military campaigns. And also you have a relief sculpture. So a relief sculpture is one in which the images and the background are all of us made out of a single piece of stone. Um, but the figures are sort of raised to the touch and kind of pop out of the background. So Assyrian reliefs are bas relief, um, which is a French ish term for, uh, referring <laughs> to the low degree of distance between the most raised bits and the background. Um, so like high relief is where they're like really coming out. Uh, but this it's is like practically relief. statues, but they're still attached yeah, to the statues that are kind of relief. Yeah. Um, so yeah. reliefs usually have inscriptions running across them, uh, ranging from essentially captions uh, to full detailed accounts of the events depicted in the images. Um, and sometimes you'll have like what's called the standard inscription of a given king. And that is sort of the um, standard inscription. Like it's one that talks about... Um, it, it it has the full epithet, so there's like a whole oh, paragraph of King like of the four corners of the world and bestiest you know, like, bestest. Did this that was and is like is is um, all his titles, like, yeah, all his titles and accolades and sort of and and that sort of printed across it, like ding 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 across it. Um, <laughs> so um, Assyrian, so this is all Assyrian royal art because mm. these these reliefs are. Um, generally found in palaces. Um, and so Assyrian royal art provided what Julian Reed, who is a, um, is one of like the, the big art historians who focuses on, um, Assyrian art at the British museum, um, calls a self portrait of the King. Um, so as I said, uh, most of it comes from the palaces of which there are several, um, so over the course of the neo-Assyrian period, the capital moved a few times, like it started at Ashur, it, it but it did not happen. stay at Ashur. Um, and that was most famously at Nineveh, uh, which is roughly where Mosul is today in Iraq. 
Um, so if you entered the, so if you were in Nineveh or any other palace at, at Khorsabad, um, or Nimrud, like any of the, the, the palaces of the kings, mm-hmm. um, maybe you are an official representative of another state. Uh, cause there were a few states that they were actually like peers with, um, like Babylon for the most part, uh, until sometimes, until some stuff yeah. went south. Um, and Urartu was another one where you would have like ambassadors. Um, and sure. so maybe you were showing up there or maybe you were bringing tribute because you were a vassal state. Um, or maybe you were considering resistance to the yoke of Ashur, or maybe you stood accused of some insubordination, um, or maybe you were just reporting for work as part of like admin at the at, clocking like, in with your clay timesheet. Yep, <laughs> which actually is not far from the truth. Um, like ledgers and things like that. Well, clay work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so as you made your, in any of these cases, um, as you <laughs> made your way through the hallways and rooms, um, leading to the throne room and to the king himself or to like a, a high ranking courtier that you may be having a meeting with, um, you'd be treated to a very deliberate story that could be accessed whether you could read cuneiform or not. Yeah, um, pictures. Yeah. So more public areas, um, Featured religious or mystical issue I- images, um, highlighting the king as supplicant and like dutiful worshiper and high priest and chosen hand of the gods. There's also some fish people. Um, we so, love, we love a fish person. So that's where you get, you get your, your, your fish people, you get your winged geniuses, um, mm. that are tending the tree of life, which is associated with Ashur. So like doing, like doing these like important, um, like cosmological functions, like where it's, it's bigger than just this, this plane, um, this this mortal coil. Yeah. So, um, you, like you, you would, you would see that as well as lots and lots of images of tribute. So you, this guy is so great. Well, you can, but you can also get a sense of the, um, vastness of the empire because Mm -hmm. you'll have, um, all of the exotic people, some of them wearing funny hats or, you know, some of them who have uh, no beards, beards, wearing like very non-Assyrian clothes in these images, bringing exotic things to the king in both fear and awe of him. Um, so it all sended, lended a sense of self-confidence, like the gods have ensured the entire world is all mine for the taking. And so you walk through and be like, dang like that's the idea not Um, subtle so it's sort of like for the public for the guest of being like oh okay i see i see why this is here i see why all of this is happening setting the extremely not uh not modest tone right because this like he is um like modesty is irrelevant to him like that that sort of like it is just because he is yeah. Larger than life. Um, like modesty is for people who aren't the king. Um, and so elsewhere in the palace, um, and like closer in, um, you have more concrete aspects of Assyrian imperialism shown. You see military conquests and wars. You see putting down rebellions, lots of things of, of rebels because, um, also, um, 
uh, we'll get to those in a second, like why that is matters and is a big part of the art in these palaces. You've got um, feasting and celebration of said conquests. We so, won. so like, like, yeah. So you can have this sort of like Pax Assyriana kind of thing of like that things are good here because the king is so good at managing this empire. Kinging. Yeah. Um, and then also lion hunts, <laughs> which are, um, are, if I remember correctly, uh, are kind of in what is what was thought to be the throne room. So it's sort of mm. at like closest to closest <laughs> so the to king the king can look up and be like, yeah. yeah. And so um, is this narrative or is this propaganda? And was it believed by everyone and part of universal Mesopotamian ideology or was it specifically crafted for political purposes? Um, so like, in the these like deeper spaces that are not as accessible to the public, um, which like to whatever extent the public may be able to see it, but like guests, um, courtiers, <laughs> like courtiers and admin, uh, were able to look around and be like, Yes, this is what we do. And it's like it's sort of like to keep them like amped. To, to keep them amped and feeling um virile, I guess. Sure. Like and also, if you are going to have an audience, if you're going to have an audience with the king and you are in one of these categories of uh, people who may find themselves getting taken care of, yeah, um, the, the things that you see in the uh, military conquests, war and putting down rebellions sections um, can be pretty horrific. Um, And so I have um, in the show notes, I have a link to, I think it's a medium post that is like a roundup and I don't, I'll include like a content note in the show notes, but also like I am not like, I don't feel like super great about the words on that section. Um, but it is like a pretty like neat, like clean, like tidy roundup of, um, some of the, like the hallmarks of, um, of, of violent art in Assyrian art. And so you have things like, um, how, uh, basically like, uh, war crimes, it's all war crimes. And so you have like torture of captives. You have like, um, one where you see like a bunch of a bunch of non-Assyrian people like sort of like kneeling and it looks like they're like making like masa um, but the caption oh. says that they are grinding the bones of their ancestors um, well yikes and so it's this sort of like full like that the, this like this is what we do and this is what we do and sort of like not only will we take what if you resist and do not pay tribute and do not allow us to like have you as a puppet like governor in in your state we will destroy you we will end you yeah like we will like we will end you and we will end your line and we will erase any memory of you and we will make an example of you so you have things like impaling um, and they're mm-hmm. just like images of like little, like little dudes being impaled. And, and, and so you see like, like again, not subtle. And you see, um, violence against women. That's the one that like you, you 
I've, you only see against the Arabs. And I've mentioned that before. I've talked about that before is that the, the one instance of uh, sexual violence, um, that I know of and I've looked in Assyrian art is, is against the Arabs. And so you see, uh, you see, um, brutality. And so we talked about this, um, in our episode of, on Hassan Lu, and there's like the big debate yeah. over who's responsible for it. And so what you see at Hassan Lu is, the um, deliberate and um, brutal murder of non-combatants. And there has uh, always been a bit of reticence to say that the Assyrians did it because I think that people feel attached to the Assyrians and they like, like no, they wouldn't. Yeah. And, yeah. and but no, it's the, right there on the, and, on the plaques. They yeah. Would. And so that's something we'd be like, well, maybe it's like, maybe it's artistic, like maybe it's propaganda, but like, no, like it seems that people super did, um, commit war crimes. Um, and it gets worse as, um, as the Assyrian empire goes on. Like, so the work of like the art, um, under Ashurbanipal is like, is extreme. Um, in a way that the work of Asir Nasirpal at the beginning of earlier guy at, at the beginning of the Neo Assyrian period. Um, so like he sort of inherit, like, um, he was the first real king of the Neo Assyrian period, Asir Nasirpal the second. Um, Asir Nasirpal the first was, um, this was before Assyria blossomed again, I guess. Um, and so the lion hunts and the feasting scenes also all, like get brutal. Um, and so there's, there are lion hunts in the, in the palace of Asir Nasirpal, um, the second. And then there's lion hunts in the palace of Ashurbanipal. And so that is sort of like a, that that is kind of like a hearkening back to um like the founder the same way that Sargon the Second, who was like Sargon the Great, he was a Neo Assyrian. Um, and so he was hearkening back to OG Sargon, uh, Sargon hmm. of Akkad. So that kind of like calling back to your to your ancestors to like further legitimate yourself um yep. and legitimize yourself. Um and so the the lion hunts have been the subject of lots and lots and lots of, of scholarship. Um, and it's this, and it, and it touches on this idea of control, not only over humans, but of nature. And that, you know, the, like the fiercest thing you can think of a lion, um, even they like are subject to the king um, because you know, you think about the wilderness and that's something that even today sort of can be like beyond us. And it's quite scary because it's something that is, is non-human. Um, mm -hmm. and so you can't reason with it. Um, and just as you can't reason with the wilderness, you can't control the wilderness, but the king could. The king can. Um, and so in, um, in Ashur Nasirpal, the second, uh, lion reliefs there, um, the earlier ones. The, the earlier ones. They're 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 quite beautiful. There's like some like pathos to the like an animal getting shot. Um, sure. But in um Ashurbanipal, like these are um I will I'll pull up uh, I'll pull pull them up from the uh, a link to them at the British Museum. Um and I I do um 
even though it is a bar relief, um, it is very evocative of sort of the like suffering of, of the animals. Um, but these are like, like strong lions and everything. But in reality, um, the lions, uh, lions are not at that point. They are not, uh, native to nope. anywhere. So they would like bring them in and like they would so import probably them. probably weren't feeling great after all that travel. Well, they would, they would bring them in and they would, they would keep them. They would be sort of like housed on like a, oh, basically like a, like a game ranch. And oh, then no. you could, and then you go and it's sort of like, you go on safari. They, that's what it is. And they would be in a chariot and you'd shoot them from the chariot. And there's one where like Ashurbani Paul is like, eh, like stabbing at like Bill the Butcher in the gangs of New York. Um, and, um, the, and so that you're just like, oh, wow. He's like looking it in the eye. And it's like this very like, oh, he's like going, up. I'm the captain now. <laughs> like, just like nose to nose with this, like this, like terrible Powerful beast. And like beast. he wins. Um, but, sure. I was thinking of this, um, I, I am coming off of vacation and, um, I was, I was driving, we were driving through Texas and we happened to drive through, um, on either side of the interstate, a very large ranch. Um, this is when I like freaked out because I saw Arabian Oryx, um, which are, um, super not native to Texas, super not native to Texas and also quite rare, uh, in Arabia and also are, um, are just one of those animals that is so beautiful. Like it's just sort of like hard to the Tilda Swinton of the antelope world. (laughs) Yeah. And just like, like a, or just like, just like animals in general that, you know, you've got animals that you can hunt that you're like, cool like like even you know like yeah, the, the like an elk sort of or something an alien you're like okay it. but yeah it is just this like they're very striking and they've just got these impossibly long horns um and so we were driving through and i like freaked out because it's like I got a series of very confused texts and so yeah and it was just something that like i didn't i was just like why is that here I was seeing cows. I was seeing lots of cows. And now there's this. I saw a like, zebu. Like, just like all of this stuff. Like, and. How'd we, you know it was a zebu? Like, what? are they distinctive? Yeah. There, there, there was. Oh, there, sorry. There I'm was thinking of. Zebu. Sorry. Nope. Sorry. I'm thinking of the, um, like the thing that's a zorse. I'm thinking of a thing that's a cross between a zebra and a horse. No, no, but I did see like, some zebras, but none of that is relevant because I am talking about <laughs> these game ranches where you can like hunt these like gorgeous, wild and, and often dangerous animals. Um, but it's not going out on a safari and like finding them in the wild. You no, are doing it from the safety of your you're, Jeep or whatever. You're making a reservation and then you get in like an AT, you get on an ATV and you just go, do 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 and then stop and then you shoot it and like it's not it is not the um display of machismo that you may think it is and so i was just thinking about just kind of like the the continuity of this this idea of like of violent masculinity and the desire to like and, and prowess defeat nature, but doing it in yeah. this very, like very, <laughs> very contrived way. because you're yeah. not going to take the king of the world, like out into the literal wilderness and like, and let him stab and, and a his, lion in the chest. Yeah. Like, because the lion is going to destroy right. him. Um, yes. And you don't want him to 
you don't want to tell them that. So you like are no. like, yeah, let's hunt some lions. Um, and so like, and so over the course of 250 years. <laughs> he must years, have had a chief of security. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just like. Um, um, we know who some of those people are because oh, they're mentioned cool. by name in, in like in texts and mm. in like correspondence and stuff. But over the course of 250 years, you see this like escalation um, to an almost absurd degree of, of violence and like violent rhetoric. Um, because it starts out being like, we, we got, like, we made it, we, I was the first king to make it to the Mediterranean since, you know, like the, the, you know, like the middle Assyrian period, like just sort of like that, that sort of thing, which is like Asher, um, Asher Paul the second, like made it to the Mediterranean, which is like huge for, Ooh. for trade and control and, and the economy and things like that. Um, that's the problem so, with like a dynasty. You have to like one up yeah, the you have previous to keep generation, one which, um, yeah. Until somebody like goes too hard and then they get their city sacked. Um, yep. because yeah, so, so you, so you have, and then also the, the feasting scenes, um, mm-hmm. go from just being like, woo party to there's one that, um, is really incredible and like <laughs> almost funny if it weren't quite oh. so horrible. Um, oh. and so it's obviously an Ashurbanipal feasting scene. And so it's this nice little scene, like a relief scene. And I say little, it's like, you know, 12 feet tall, like eight feet tall sure. or whatever. Um, you know, but modest. he's like, he's like kicked back, like on his, on his little couch. He's like, yeah. uh, he's like on like a chaise and like he's <laughs> eating and he's got his wine and a consort is there. And so she's, she's sitting like up Lady on her chair friend. and she's just like, and and like you've got like people around him like fanning them and they're just like having a great time they're out in the garden and then over in the corner there's a dude's head hanging out of the tree and um and so and it's like it's labeled and it's like this is the head of Tuman, the king of the elamite so it's just like he had he had a battle and like killed the king and was like and brought his head Get back. Give me that head back there. And just like put ornament. up like a lantern, like in yeah. a tree. And so it is, um, it's just. And then like, like kicked back and was like, how's that baby? Yeah. And it's just like this. And so I, um, I find <laughs> that like, is so a little bit funny. It like, it went, and so it went in class. Our professor was like, oh, look at that. Isn't that cute? And I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean. <laughs> Cute is not. Know, yeah, no. What that's the problem with having something so distanced in time. That's just like, like yeah. yeah, and we put a pin in that. Sure, and also in that professor because I'm going to talk about it in like two minutes. Um, okay. Um, and so I have always found Ashurbanipal very compelling, and it makes me think of um, in the show Arrested Development. Um, George Michael has a crush on his teacher, and so he makes her a gift, and it's like this poster board that's all like photos of Saddam Hussein and like hearts and stuff. And his dad is like, "Why did you do this?" He's like, "Oh, she she loves Saddam Hussein." He's like, "I don't think she loves Saddam Hussein. <laughs> like, she might find him interesting <laughs> as like a because she was like his history teacher or something." And then then he like presents it to her and she's like, Oh, I love Saddam Hussein. It's just, just like, there's a recurring bit through the episode of just like, does she love Saddam Hussein? Or is she just like, Oh, he's so cruel. Like just, and so I feel that people get this way about Ashurbanipal uh, okay. because he is like the medalist King, but it also is like um, pretty awful. Um, so for, 
truly public audiences, you have something like a uh, stila or a relief sculpture out in the world. You usually just see the king as a worshiper of Ashur. You don't see, um, you don't see the uh, the people's heads and and heads around. Just piles of heads. Got a bag of heads in one. It's just like insane. Um, truly awful stuff. Um, but all of this constitutes the royal image. Or Salmu, we don't know what Salmu is because it had meaning. Oh, it's one of those. It had meaning to the Assyrians that we can't access. Okay. Um, and so there is um, there is a scholar, there is an art historian who is a um, contemporary of the professor that said like, oh, isn't that cute? Um, who um, talks, who, uh, her name is Zana Bahrani, uh, and I think she's at Columbia. And she has a book, she came up with a book like, years ago um that is about this and largely about this and it's called the graven image and it's about salmu and um she talks about it as presencing the king um like her she's got very so i don't like when art historians make up words i know um and i know and so she has it's very like her stuff is very like informed by postmodernism. um she herself is um is of Iraqi heritage. I think she is from Iraq. Um, and so she makes some really great points in that book and elsewhere about sort of the persistent Orientalism of Assyriology and like Orientalism in the uh, sense of Edward Said, whose book Orientalism in 1978 um, sort of first fully articulated this idea that Western scholarship about um, the continent of Asia and North Africa, so including Southwest Asia, um, mm-hmm. is not so much about the reality of those places, but it is the extension of a fantasy that's informed and informs um, like imperial uh, endeavors and colonial exploits. And like even just the idea of the Middle East, like mm. east of what? East of mm-hmm. us, um, yeah, that sort of yep. thing, and so, um, so all work in this arena and in this geography is inherently political um, and in service of power. So, so she makes um, really good points about that, and like I, I am here for those. Um, but this book was ruined by some bad arguments and cherry picked evidence. Um, and, uh, like to the point of one of my colleagues, one of my classmates, um, who was, who is an Assyriologist, uh, was looking at this and he's like, if she had just gone to like the next page of the volume of texts from this corpus, she would have found (laughs) a better example of what she was trying to argue. Um, and just like not good scholarship. This, that was one of my first moments of being like, people can write bad books <laughs> like like, ah. it, like learning this reading and being like oh no um and so this is also i i i think that this work is very um representative of um ancient near eastern art history and art historical work to um suffer from uh being up its own butt and mm-hmm. just like just being kind of divorced from archaeology divorced from even other aspects of the written record um to just sort of like get really into um 
the meaning and sort of like the meaning. Yeah. And so um, I, rather than continuing to talk about that more, I want to quote and kind of bring it back around to thinking of like how we were thinking about the Acadian empire Wink. Um, with this um, review of the graven image written by Brian Brown, uh, not the Australian actor. Um, actually, <laughs> Great, thanks. Actually, a guy who uh, finished his PhD at Berkeley about a year or two before I started. So I met him like twice. Um, but oh. I really love this review. So quoting it's, from I, Brown. I'm going to need to look up hegemony again for the 90,000. So time. hegemony has to do with the um, the transmission of power and sort of the, the maintenance of power in like a single line. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. I just never remember what that word means. It's okay. It doesn't come up a lot for your work. No. It's fine. Power dynasties in the Paleolithic (laughs) that you know of that I know Um, of. So Brown says, quote, and I will link to the whole thing in the show notes. Um, not book club. (laughs) no, (laughs) You can read um, it. And this is also means, something that you'll club. have people who will be like, I'm thinking about this. I recommend this book. And I'm just like, don't. No. <laughs> don't. Don't. Um, so he says, Bahrani is correct to insist upon the distinction between ideology and propaganda. And to note that this difference is not often, is often not recognized in ancient Near Eastern scholarship. So this idea of what people actually believed and what, the government was saying about itself. Um, but when, when the issue actually arises, Bahrani hesitates in acknowledging that propaganda was an important factor in the creation of royal images. Sometimes propaganda certainly exists. Sometimes it doesn't. So with citations, we're in the book. Um, the general impression is that while these objects somehow, perhaps accidentally, came to be infused with propaganda, this was not really an overtly conscious decision, the focus being more on presencing. I can only regard this position as a major achievement of Assyrian <laughs> royal propaganda. <laughs> Bahrani has naturalized the underlying ideology, an ideology <laughs> stressing elements of divine rule, imperialist conquest, and extreme social hierarchy to a point where it appears to be more a general part of the entire social system than of a relatively small group of hereditary rulers, priests, landowners, and others. Few better indications of the effectiveness of of royal Assyrian propaganda can be imagined. (laughs) Indeed, while we may say that researchers who have focused on propaganda and ideology in the Assyrian period have erred in stressing the centrality of the king, Bahrani goes in the opposite direction and attributes a hegemonic discourse to the society as a whole. Give the PR team a raise. So um, I thought that that really like... That's a really uh, astute interpretation of somebody's work. Yeah. 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 And so, um, and so I thought that, that now I know like we are going long, but like it took so much to like get to a point of like talking about the thing I wanted to talk about and then being like, <laughs> oh, but now we need to do the thing that like is true to like what we usually do in the show. <laughs> so it's, um, but now I thought that it would be, um, since we sort of talked about this this kind of trap that Bahrani kind of tripped and fell into, um, <laughs> like maybe we should sort of explore a little bit about um, how we got to this point. Like, 
super she, briefly she and also and fell in like in context yes uh, <laughs> like, fell into a, a context hole um yeah so help yes. me out anna i shall the the main reasons that people in the western world uh, west of what hmm. <laughs> exactly i mean of yeah. assyria yeah where the west people where the people beyond Mar <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's the Western one. Uh, so, so the main reason that people in the Western world became interested in the archaeology of the Assyrian Empire and other related polities are twofold, possibly morefold, but two big ones. First of all, manifold. Fine. First of all, this is a part of the world that pops up in the Bible a whole bunch. Yep. Uh, and secondly. From around the 18th century onward, renewed Western interest in classical literature and antiquarianism meant that rich Europeans wanted to get their grabby little hands on artifacts with some connection to the empires, the glories of the past. And so a lot of the place names mentioned in those classical and later texts don't match up with the Akkadian names. And that's because the people, at least the people the European antiquarians and scholars were aware of, those people writing about the Assyrians were Greek, and so the names were Hellenized, or at least they were writing in Greek. And so, for example, Nineveh became Nineveh, uh, Ashurbani Apli became Ashurbanipal, or Sardanapalus, another both biblical and and um, Assyrian name, Belshar Usur, became Belshazzar. Yeah, and uh, Nabunaid, our boy. Nabonidus. Uh, Nabonidus, yeah. Um, and so... Everything that we've talked about so far for the past mm-hmm. hour um, has really it's been just needed to be a lot of contextualization. Well, no, has, but all of that has been a, a real case of history from above, um, ah. and so that's so that idea of looking for big men, uh, a nerd's eye view. <sighs> yep. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> in this case, yeah, um, and um, and so this idea of looking to what. Um, you know, these hegemonies were saying about themselves and and what they wanted to project onto the world and and you know the, the adage of like history is written by the victors. Um but that's and also when you have uh modern uh, modern empires looking to their their forefathers, if you are perceived forefathers, it, yeah. Well, yeah, and if you are on the tympanum of the Oriental Institute. Yeah. It, uh, um, okay. Yep. <laughs> and, I forgot. Um, I always forget that he's on there. <laughs> um, yeah, one of them is. Um, yeah. So th- that is all like history from above, and that is something that it, that persists in Assyriology. I had a colleague who is still in the field and doing quite well, who once told me. Um, I don't really want to excavate. I just want you to, I just want them to hand me the pretty stuff. And like that, that kind of idea. Um, and so I think many people can guess my position on all of these things. Um, mm. since from last week and, and every <laughs> other week with me. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to give some attention to history from below. Um, and, and sort of, 
sources for looking at <laughs> history and how history is done. So sort of historiography of the ancient Near East and some folks that I recommend. Um, so if you want to learn about sort of the like ever moving and like ever shifting complexities of, of power from just like a high level, sort of like this empire did this, it moved here. They, they had incursion here and like a high level as in, as in just like, like um, high, high level. Like when I said, like, you've got your old Assyrian period and then you've got your okay. old Babylonian and then you've got not the high level as in and reporting from above, as you said before, there's a fair amount of that because of what, okay. the, of, because of the sources that you're using to talk about sort of the movements right. of a King's military okay. and those sorts yeah. of things. Okay. Um, but, um, I recommend a history of the ancient Near East. Um, I think it's in like its third or fourth edition now, um, uh, by Mark Vandermeerup, who is I know that name. coincidentally married to Zainab Bahrani. Um, ah. And this was something that I like brought up that like in that class to be like, do they not like talk over dinner? Like, I understand like respecting like your partner's career and like doing their own thing, but like there's sure. some like, like, wrong things in there um so eh. but um he well like he is um he is an ancient historian and he's not that old but um he uh-huh. Uh-huh, and he's uh so he's like a professor of um assyriology and egyptian um history so he also did a history of egypt um and it's also really good um but a book that I really recommend if you are interested in thinking about um, history and historiography of the ancient Near East is his book, Cuneiform Texts and the Writing of History, uh, because he breaks, he looks at sort of history from above, but history from below, and also gets into the um, various intellectual schools that have informed um, ancient Near Eastern historiography historiography today um and a big and a a big one um is uh sort of marxist uh like marxism informed um uh, approaches to history and so um there you know there's like the the like the the regular joke of like like marx could not anticipate this happening and then somebody finds like a weird like throwaway of like the basically being like like crypto is basically linen coats and <laughs> just like the, like the sort of like, like there are, there are some folks that use Marx as almost like a, almost like a Bible of like finding scripture that's relevant to like an economic issue of the day. Um, yeah. but Marx died when, uh, in like 1883. And so it was within a few years of the first excavations at Nineveh. And so people were just starting to find out that like this stuff was real. Um, and so like Akkadian was starting to be read. So like Marx did not know about the ancient Near East. Um, if he did, he probably would have done a better job of not writing about sort of the like, what like oriental despotism and like the asiatic mode of production which are like two parts of like old school like marxist thought um that have fallen out of favor because they're bs um and they're racist like that's also the problem well it Um, sounded super racist just the yeah that categories yeah Yeah. like uh, just like despotism and that's something that informs orientalism um yes but 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 like marxist like um, approaches to history include like looking at social class, looking at relationships 
among classes um, and looking at economic constraints and their um, sort of like economic conditions and how they inform lives and sort of the role of the state. And so this is a place and a time where the state um, mm. is a very big deal. And so it, so there, um, there are, um, it's a helpful lens for approaching of, and, and it is part of that history from below, like looking at the lives of the wider population um, towards understanding the mechanisms of society in that place. Looking at um, everyone who wasn't a Shabanapal. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, a, uh, a book came out a couple years ago called What's Left of Marxism, Historiography and the Possibilities of Thinking with Marxian Themes and Concepts. Um, there's a chapter about um, sort of the history and legacy of sort of Marxist thought approaching the uh, ancient history. Um and it's on Google Books. I really recommend it. It's like pretty accessible and it's like a really cool, like, just like look at like, here's like, here's how we got where we are and who's doing what. Um, and there, right. and the, of a, um, I think one of the best, um, historians of the ancient Near East is a man named Mario Liverani. Um, and, um, I will include in the show notes some, um, some links to a couple of his, his works that might be, um, sort of entry points, including, um, this, this talk that he gave, like an address that he gave that was called ancient Near Eastern history from Eurocentrism to an open world. And so just thinking about sort of the future of historiography yeah. of the ancient Near East. Um, so I wanted to sort of do, give it the dirt treatment and not just talk about, um, our boy, Ashurbani Paul, the whole time talking about himself. Um, and then there's the archaeological stuff. Um, Anna, did you want to share that? I know I've been talking for a long, long time, but also I got this just for you because I wanted Thank to get you. some. I loved it. A couple examples of like a human. It's just the one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So first, just something to consider. Um, despite the fact that we've been talking about this kind of political machine that is the Neo-Assyrian Empire, um, it is reductive, sort of to say the least, to, to think of that as a monolithic system. So one of the major insights that comes from the archaeological record for an empire like that of the Neo-Assyrians is the more fine-grained picture of how the empire actually operated, like on the ground in real life. To some extent, we're not going to be able to access that, of course. But the empire, the, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, covered several geographic regions, each with its own idiosyncratic ways of fulfilling governmental roles. So they might have done something different up in the mountains than they did down by the Gulf. There yeah. were constant... Uh, yeah, and, and, and they along, might along not with have... That, like, people who lived there might not have known they were under the yoke of offshore. Yeah, not even... Yeah, Because if you're just, just paying the like, same guy your taxes... Matter. Yeah. And he passes it on to a different guy. Like, you don't know. Yeah. I get back to my, like, nobody cares that Ashur is the head of the pantheon <laughs> position. Added to all of that, there were constant political fluctuations, power struggles, interregional conflicts. And that's not always something you get from the texts. Mm -hmm. So if we only had the written material from the Assyrian Empire, we might think that it was this well-oiled, monolithic, political machine, very homogenous, 
on every scale of governance from Ashurbanipal or whoever, all the way down to Joe Assyrian. But the archaeological record compared across the regions under the Assyrian regime says otherwise. And so we're not going to go into case studies from all of the regions, but <laughs> just so just so we are aware, you and me, Amber, and, and our listeners, that not everything was, was boilerplate. So speaking of geographic reach, I loved this. I know you found this just for me, and, and I love that, and I love this story. Here's a report from SciNews.com from 2021 of an archaeological find that really speaks to the scope of the Assyrian Empire's influence, if not like direct connections. So mm -hmm. the find in question is a suit of Assyrian-style leather armor, totally cool, made from overlapping scales and with laces to bind it all together. So it's sort of like a bathrobe, sort of, in that you can like pull it on and lace it up really quickly. You don't have to spend like an hour and a half attaching different pieces to your various body parts yeah, the way that like metal armor is. A coat. A coat. Yeah, sure. Um, also, you can see examples of this in Assyrian art. Mm. So, <laughs> yes. They just, they, they kind of look like little armadillos. They do. <laughs> they really do. Um, <laughs> I've seen one now. I'm an expert. An armadillo, not an Assyrian yeah. in leather armor. But, you know, you can't, it's, it's very funny when you startle an Assyrian because they roll up in a ball. <laughs> they just go, That's an armadillo joke. I know. All right, so. I'm an expert. The whole thing, the whole coat, suit of armor, would have weighed around five kilograms, which seems heavy, but also that's much, much Not to me. Than I don't know metric. Oh, right. this is what I did. This is how I know exactly it's the hamburger thing. Because that's how much yeah. beef I got. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like. Yeah. So it's. <laughs> quite a few pounds of beef or armor either way um but it would have been you know since it's leather it it would have been lighter than metal plated or fully metal armor so this find dates to 786 to 543 bce and that is new reveal mm -hmm. the neo Very much so yeah right in the sweet spot but it was found in 2013 in the tomb of a 30-year-old male near the modern-day city of Turfan in northwest China. So here is a quote from the Sci News write-up. Quote, The researcher said, Whether the wearer of the Yanghai armor himself was one of the foreign soldiers in Assyrian service who was outfitted with Assyrian equipment and brought it home, or he captured the armor from someone else who was there, is a matter of speculation. What it does establish, however, is that the Yanghai armor is one of the rare actual proofs of West-East technology transfer across the Eurasian continent during the early 1st millennium BCE when social and economic transformation accelerated, end quote. And so that is so cool. That is so cool. And um, just for a sense of geography, I had to, like, I looked this up and I had to, like, get the coordinates and like i did a lot of math to figure this out oh um better but, than me thank you but torfan or torpan mm. um in in Xinjiang province um mm. is as the crow flies so not even like it as one would travel so as the great anzu bird flies um oh it is uh 2458 miles away from Nineveh. bit of a schlep that it is yeah and so um 
So I want you to just like sit with that and, and just like put your brain back in your brain because it just got blown. Um, and we're going to take one more break and then we're going to come back and, uh, we're going to try to find some more evidence for actual people. Hey fans of APN podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our T public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items and T public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link. We're back. And in the immortal and often quoted words of our undergrad archaeology professors, statistically speaking, most people were not Usher by Nepal. This was not the professor that was like, isn't that cute? No, he wouldn't. He would not. He would not. So most people were not Asher by Nepal. That's to say only a very small portion of the population was elite. Other people existed. <laughs> in all t- Imagine. In all types of non-elite and non-political roles, which you might not know from the Assyrian literary sources, because what those sources mostly talk about are the elites and their politics and lists of birds, I guess. If we can't rely on... Yes? I was going to name more types of birds. Swan. Weird swan. That's a duck. Black swan. That's a movie. Duck. Goose. Rude duck. That's a goose. (laughs) So, if we can't rely on the historical record to give us a picture of everyday lives, we can look at the archaeological record. I mean, we could, but most people don't. Because it took me yeah. like an hour to find any examples. Of- <laughs> Just a, a source. <laughs> an example. So remember, little flag, archaeology is as much about interpretation as it is about data. So we're not saying that archaeological material is the arbiter of truth. Here. Only that the lives of regular people still existed, despite them not being Ashurbanipal. And they left material behind too, which eventually Amber found an article about. Yeah, uh, and this is and by by cool someone article. who, um, uh, Reed Goodman, who is working with possibly still right now, uh, working in Iraq with friend of the show, Lugal Paul. Lugal Paul, what's up, Paul? So there is currently a very cool ongoing project out of the University of Pennsylvania called Visualizing the Past. And as a part of that project, researchers are working with archaeological data and mapping programs like ArcGIS, bless them, to build I was, such a hard program to use for me specifically, to build a 3D model of the Neo-Assyrian rural center at the site of Telbilla. We'll have a link in the show notes, and I encourage you to check out the figure section. So good. It lays out all the components of the 3D modeling from bing satellite images to site maps to the actual like digital polygon mesh framework of the model listeners may may be interested to know my favorite image is (laughs) captioned additional pottery vessels with sheep female individual and wheelbarrow with figure 31 textured sheep a close second here's a quote from uh from this article quote this project visualizes domestic space in a neo-assyrian town through 3d computer modeling specifically the project created a virtual workspace from the architectural plans of Telbilla, an archaeological site in northern Iraq 
that served as a regional center of the Assyrian Empire during the 2nd and 1st millennia BCE. End quote. So this comes from um, material that was excavated in the 30s. So from October 1930 to the spring of 1935, there were excavations at Talbilla, um, headed up by the American Schools of Oriental Research in Baghdad via UPenn. And so that was referred to as the Joint Assyrian Expedition. And so yeah, Amber's making a yikes-a-roni face. Indeed. I'm making my Penn Museum face. Yeah. So the Penn Museum archives contain building plans, an object catalog from those excavations, and most of the object photographs and site notes for 78 burials from the third excavation campaign. So around 1933, there are multiple sort of phases. So they, they used all this data to inform a 3D model of what just sort of looking at, like if you were to go to Google Street View, uh, <laughs> circa first millennium BCE, and to like look around, this is sort of what you would see. So, so it would be uh, Google. <laughs> oh, it would be Google. Oh, that's a very niche joke. This this episode is, I think, maybe topping the That would mean big for- goo. Yeah, I know it would mean big goo. That's Sumerian. Don't at me. Okay. <laughs> anyway, this research team used Autodesk Maya software to build a small corner of the residential area using data-based assumptions, like houses were made of mud brick. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and that's based on ethnographic observations of architecture in in the region. Um because mud brick is, that's what's there, mud. Uh, and they were also, also based on ethnographic observations, the houses were given flat thatched roofs. Uh, wall height was estimated based on the thickness of the actual walls, because the, the walls weren't there anymore, but their, their sort of foundations were. Pottery types of the period were included, as well as animals, livestock, determined from faunal remains. And I just really liked this quote from the from the article. Sheep were included for livestock types since they were amply discussed in the cuneiform documents found at Telbilla. Just, just lots of tablets about sheep. And so basically now where the project is, at least to my understanding, is that this little area has been mapped out and now it can be kind of populated with, with little neo-assyrian sims um they can add men women children i don't know more sheep uh and so what the model will be able to do i'm going to quote again from the article quote people can be represented in both households and on the street and at different times of day with a change in time specific activities going out ah going from your day look to your night look greater household variety can be introduced with a mix of one and two story structures the baked brick of household courtyards can be visualized, as well as the stone-lined drain of the central street. So these are things I know exist from from the, the site reports. Mm-hmm. In addition, projected house elements, such as furniture and cooking hearths, can be depicted. Beds can be set out on roofs, and rising smoke can flow from kitchen areas. The entire quarter can be reduplicated and set into contiguous regions to expand the overall size of the representation and thus domestic space. (laughs) Like, you create a household, and then you go, copy-paste, copy-paste. It's like a subdivision. Yeah. Most importantly for the project's intended purpose, the scene can be animated in Maya, 
or uploaded to a cross-platform game engine software such as Unity. Sounds can be added based on social activities and livestock, and cultural lifeways can be simulated. Ultimately, the model's near-term goal is to animate the scene and therefore represent domestic experience at Telbilla through studied interpretation. The residential quarter was rendered in Maya and used as an analytical tool to understand how an inhabitant might have experienced domestic space at Telbilla, particularly and within the Assyrian landscape more generally. End quote. Ah, so, yeah, so this is really cool because of the project it describes and like the really interesting, it's interesting to think about the applications of modeling and sort of world designing as a, as a research tool. Um, but also because a lengthy section of the paper I, that I really enjoyed talks about the process of digitally interpreting and reconstructing the past and sort of really very thoughtfully outlines the considerations that, that need to go into that. Um, yeah. And I appreciated that research. I thought it was neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, yeah, and, um, just to like yes. super clarify, this was the second millennium BC into the first millennium BCE. So it is yes. not, it is not quite so like squarely Neo-Assyrian the way that suit of armor was, um, mm. but adjacent. I did what I could. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Thank a really you. cool project. So I just want to say is. like, it is not like so squarely Neo-Assyrian, but it was, um, it was part of that world at that time. For another example of where we see everyday people, like Sly and the Family Stone, we're going to take a little day trip to the Halsey Gate neighborhood of Nineveh, or Nineveh, the Assyrian capital city. So granted, this was a place that was once a pretty ritzy neighborhood, um, and we know that from materials like jewelry and from the fortified architecture, including a stone gate lock that I thought was really neat. I wish yeah. I could like see that. Work. Yeah, it's sort of like, I don't know. Like where like, like the bureaucrats lived. It was sort of the yeah. Uh, it was uh, the it was the um, Beacon Hill, okay. Boston's Beacon Hill. Okay. Uh, it's it's yeah. like where all the financial district. It's kind live. of like yeah, kind of like the Manhattan of sure of. Um, That's a little more relatable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, but as a chapter on the site by Diana Pickworth begins quote. The Halsey Gate was an inauspicious location to be in August of 612 BC. Just, just beautiful uh, understatement. understatement. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And for reference, the Halsey Gate uh, was the largest of Nineveh's 15 external gates. So there was a walled city and yep. there were 15 gates. Halsey Gate was the big one. So in 612 BC, uh, the city was sacked by the combined forces of the Medes and Babylonians, and the residents of the Halsey Gate neighborhood were either killed or they fled. So Pickworth, in, in that same um, chapter, provides a very concise version of the archaeological finds. Quote, Within the only partially excavated outer entrance passage, at least 12 individuals died, perhaps while defending the city or trying to escape from it as a stallion and a rider lay at the eastern limit of the gate passage. Weaponry was found throughout the area, and the scattered bodies lay where they had fallen. The associated small finds, which had not been looted, included silver jewelry, bronze personal items, stamp seals, and a lapis lazuli necklace. Um, yeah, and so I thought of this. This was the first thing that I thought of when I was sort of thinking about, like, people and, like, 
lived and ended lives in, in Nineveh, um, because, um, there is a lot of ceramic material that comes from the Halsey Gate excavations uh, that were done by David Stronach of UC Berkeley, friend of Max Malawan and Agatha Christie. Uh, he yep. was an ancient historian and archaeologist. He um, himself was ancient and also a historian. He was mostly, he was an archaeologist. He wasn't a historian. I was just trying to yep. wedge a joke into I was, there. I was trying to help you out there. Um, thanks. Um, and so a lot of uh, material was excavated there and it was eggshell ware, which is a very like uh, fine, um, it's pale, it's very smooth. Does it resemble perhaps an eggshell? It does. It, it looks, yeah, it looks like a, like an ostrich shell or something. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's not white, white, but it's, it's kind of creamy um, mm-hmm. and it's really, really gorgeous stuff. Um, it's not sturdy enough to be used for like hauling or long-term storage or anything like that, but it, it it has like a similar thickness to um, it's, it's thinner than stoneware thicker mm. than like fine China. Um, okay. But it's like, it's, it's, but it could be like everyday. It's, it's nice everyday stuff. It's like crate and barrel, um, <laughs> like CB2 kind of um, like kind of stoneware is your, is your Ikea eggshell ware is crate and barrel. Yeah. And so it's, it's just really nice. Um, why do I know about that stuff? Because um, eggshell ware was excavated at Muela, the site in um, Sharjah in the UAE where I worked and where I did my undergraduate research. Um, and we were able to um, get some from the, the Berkeley excavation uh, that Sharak headed up uh, from Nineveh. So it was it is Mesopotamian pottery. It's from the northern Mesopotamian heartland. Um it is Assyrian. It is local. We got some of that that was found in a local context and uh, did um, isotope analysis to figure out chemical matching. To, yep. And and then we reran the stuff that looked a whole lot like eggshell wear from Muela, like little bits of it, because, again, mm-hmm. not super sturdy. You're not going to find right. like the reason why there's like so much of it and it wasn't really it wasn't in great shape from Nineveh is because they like burned everything down the Nineveh was sacked yeah, yeah. <laughs> like and so it was just like um it was just like immediately like, buried like Moela burned down too but also like it this probably was like broken well before um and so we we did that and turns out that the geochemical signature of the eggshell looking wear from Moela um was um it's extraordinarily similar to the geochemical signature of the stuff from uh, the Halsey Gate, so it wasn't looking from there, uh, which makes it sound like the the queer icon singer songwriter Gate um, Halsey yeah, uh, Gate, not Halsey. Halsey. Yeah, um, no. and and so it you know it wasn't from the same it wasn't the same person or the same town that built that made it or whatever, same but region. the the geography was similar like similar enough. That not only do you know it's not from the Oman Peninsula, but it is more from northern Mesopotamia than any of the other. And we also just like tested some random stuff. Um, but we that was one of them. So that's how I knew about oh, so this. That's so far. And that's Very yeah. Far. And so it's so far also at a time when um, 
allegedly Assyria didn't have anything to do with this place that used to be known as Magan because they had control of the Mediterranean so they could get all the copper they needed to make um, uh, uh, bronze. bronze? <laughs> I was like, to Did make you iron. I was like, Iron Age, make iron. It's like, you don't need iron. <laughs> That's how I was like, so yeah, to make, to make bronze. So um, in the Bronze Age, they were getting copper from Magan, mm-hmm. um, the mm-hmm. Ruan Peninsula. Um, that's Telebrock. That is, that when we yep. talked about that, that is Bronze Age. That is part of that, like, really, like, flourished, be- like, owing to that trade. By the new Assyrian period, they were getting everything from Cyprus because they had control to, they had control of the the Mediterranean. And so, what used to be uh, sort of the Egyptian uh, stranglehold on the economy was like now theirs. Um, and and but they were still going to the Oman Peninsula, even though they didn't brag about it, um, which is a little bit more archaeology. From below. Hey. Yeah. So, to wrap up this episode, at last, I am about ready to die. It is so hot in here. Um, (laughs) So hot. Um, Let us take a moment to talk about some real people. Uh, Because um, the Assyrian Empire may have ended. Uh, The Nineveh may have gotten sacked. um, But there is a descendant community. Um, and this is also why I want to like, if it weren't for our hiatus, we would have done this earlier. We would have done this mm. at the start of last month. Um, because it would have lined up, but it would have lined close. up perfect. It's, it's great. It is springtime. So, and we are talking about them. So, um, modern Assyrians uh, still exist. Um, many of them are Christian and they are, um, Specifically, uh, Syria, Syriac Christians. So Syria comes from Assyria. Um, mm-hmm. like, sure uh, does. Is the Assyrians, um, I think the word in Aramaic, it, like the, the demonym, it, or whatever, is, um, Soraya, I think. Uh, so it's, so Syrian, it's, it's all, um, yeah. the same etymology. Um, and so Syriac Christians, Syriacs, or Aramean, or Chaldean, um, and they self-identify as descendants of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and so uh, quoting some data from the UNPO, so the Underrepresented Nation and Peoples Organization, um, it is thought that the uh, total Assyrian uh, diaspora population is um, estimated at 3.3 million worldwide. Uh, so there are a lot of them. Uh, the language that is spoken today is Assyrian, which is also referred to as Neo-Aramaic, uh, Chaldean or Syriac. So um, Aramaic is what quite a bit of the New Testament uh, was written in. That's what the language that Jesus spoke. That was like that was the commonly spoken language. So th- like Aramaic took over for Akkadian because um like, I mean, Akkadian was just on the outs and also, um, Aramaic was easier to represent, was easier to write rather than, yeah. than like, uh, use a stylus for. And so you can have yeah. a cursive and stuff. So it was also the sort of like the difference between, um, like hieroglyphics and demotic 
I guess. Yeah, or or, like, or there is there's um like block letter Hebrew and script Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. That is yeah. why I like couldn't get very far in Hebrew because uh, nobody taught me script Hebrew. Nope. And Same. so when I actually like got to class, I had no idea what anybody was doing. Um, yep. So it didn't work. The letters out. do not look the same. Totally. I mean, some of them, some of them kind of do, but. but they all look enough alike that you're like, I did not really much of an educated mm. guess here, uh, for the, yep. the handwriting. So, um, but, um, I have in the show notes, I'll have a link to a, um, a, a video in which a group of, um, of a new Aramaic speakers sort of do the same, like they, they, they're like four different, they're from four different communities um, and they're like, um, and so they each talk and the others are like, what? And they sort of like go through being like, I think I caught everything. And if you speak, um, if you speak Arabic, if you speak Hebrew, or if you like are really good at Akkadian, um, <laughs> you can, you can catch some of what they're saying. Because they're it's they're all Semitic languages, yeah. Um, and so I'll include that because it's it's very it's very fun, and um, this is a this is a community that is um, like very very invested in its resilience and its survival, um, especially in, <laughs> especially in the past uh, few decades, um, mm-hmm. because um, uh, so you may have heard about sort of the um, the like the the, the uh, like Assyrian Christians or Iraqi Christians or some of these these persecuted groups um, uh, during the control of of the region uh, well also Saddam Hussein uh, so under Saddam Hussein like very like and the Ba'ath Party was like extremely repressive of minority like uh, cultural religious ethnic groups um, just minorities and, yeah minor yeah in general. Um, and also some majorities. Um, and, and so like that, that was, uh, like, um, extremely difficult time, um, with, um, actions taken against them that qualify as genocide by like the, uh, the UN and other people that decide what a genocide is. And, um, and so, um, after that, um, not long after that, and the emergence of uh, the Islamic State or Daesh, um, they were um, they were targeted by by uh, by violence at that time and displacement, um, and and so um, it, it made things like cultural, um, uh, you know, like rituals and, and, and ceremonies and like festivals and tend to hold tighter to those things. Yeah, and and church services were increasingly difficult because they were um, rendered illegal, um, or yeah. they they were targeted for for violence. Um, and so um, the Assyrian population in Iraq and Syria um, are still um, in um, in considerable danger, as are. Um, most people, um, not to, not to minimize their, their experience, but like in, in no, any no. way, but like, this is like, this is a community that is, um, still faces active threat. Um, and, and, and there also is, um, a broad, a very widely, uh, dispersed, uh, diasporic community. Um, mm-hmm. but, I do want, and there's a large one in the Bay Area. And so through my work at um, UC Berkeley, I had the chance to um, meet several um, sort of like 
activists and artists and this, this guy, um, Sargon Benjamin, um, who made, I think he's like, I, th- I think he's sort of like pivoted in other things, but he made, um, it may still work actually, uh, like a, an app for like, for kids to like learn, um, oh, cool. new Aramaic. And, um, and so he's like a, he's a tech guy. So he's like, he does like, yeah, I got and, that like, apps the, and stuff. He made an app. Well, yeah, but like he, <laughs> he does this in his professional life too. Okay. Um, and so this was something that he took these skills, uh, like in service of his community. And so like, and so he like super nice guy, cool. Sargon yeah. Benjamin, um, and, um, great name. great name. And, and so this is this, they, they are, they are, um, they're a community that is, um, is, is like very tightly knit and like very, um, understandably proud and, and sort of like that this is that they, they have a direct line, uh, that they see direct continuity and like point of descent from, um, the, the, like the largest empire, like the greatest empire of like, of all time up to that point. Um, but also, when thinking about the the contemporary like the modern the the present day assyrian community it is a really it makes it much easier to remember that the assyrian empire the new assyrians were more than just ashurbanipal and like his lady friend and tioman's head in a tree <laughs> um but i want to you know, for ambiance yes yeah um, I want to end on like a, a bit of a lighter note um, and, and focus on that community and continuity um, and, you know, almost have it be timely uh, since it was last month. Um, so, I've, you know, for us, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the vernal equinox. So the beginning of spring um, is is uh, celebrated throughout this region, like sort of the the, the wider region that that fell under um uh, under like the Achaemenid period like Persia so yeah. as like uh no ruse which is like new day um and so like central asia um all throughout central asia in um and like into like Azerbaijan um and Iran uh, and so it's it's a it's a spring it's a new year it's a new year celebration um and and so that is usually on March 21st ish um however eh? Um, in the, um, ancient Mesopotamian, so like specifically the Babylonian and then, and and then eventually, and also Assyrian, uh, traditions, the spring festival was celebrated in the first days of the month known as Nisan. Um, and the calendar adopted by the ancient Assyrians had the month Nisan, um, and at the beginning of the calendar, so that was sort of the, their January, um, and lending the term Chabisan, uh, or the first of Nisan. So the first of Nisan, it's the new year, so it's that same um, uh, solar new year, I guess. Um, and and so so Nisan is tied to Akitu. And so Akitu was a... Um, uh, was sort of a Syrian New Year, um, but more so Babylonian New Year. Um, yeah, and the, so the Neo Assyrians sort of took it on. So when the Neo, so so when the Neo, so um, Assyria always looked to Babylon 
of Babylonia. And like, I talked about this in the Nevonidas episode, like they were always like the, like they knew that they got, they sort of like, we, in a way, like we inherited power from you. Like you came before us. Thank you. We see you. We hear you. We're in control now, but thank you. We love you love Babylon um like it is and so you have like you have the images of the king of Assyria and the king of Babylon like hugging it out like like brothers they're seen as the same size like that idea that I said like they're peers um Mm -hmm. but the um Babylonians the Chaldeans um didn't like that because it wasn't going great because they were being actively oppressed and also they were and there was also a bit of uh kind of I don't want to call it populism, but that sort of like sense of like, we're, we were like, we, we are the people of Hammurabi. Like we started this, like, how dare you kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so they, there, there were some uh, rebellions and they were sure. squashed. Um, uh-huh. And, and then they were like, okay. And they went to the, the, the Medes and they were like, are you sick of this? Cause we're sick of this. And they're like, Oh, they're sick of this. And so they did. And so and then, this and was, they, they did a, they so did in, in response to those rebellions, um, the new Assyrians were like, you know what? We put up with this long enough. We're not going to do it anymore. They destroyed Babylon and they took Marduk out of like the, the image of Marduk out of the city. And everyone was like, Oh no. Like this sort of like, Oh, you, you did it. You did not do that. I know you did not do that as sort of what was happening. And it was just this huge, this like grave assault, not only on in political, but also, but also a metaphysical assault of removing Marduk sort of the head of the pantheon. They took overthrew Enlil. Remember it was a big deal. No, Joe Assyrian like knew all about it. I bet he did. And, and so there was this idea. And so that was like, Oh no. And so that was seen as almost like this sort of putting a curse on, on offshore kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so then Assyria got sacked. So after they, like after they took, after, because, um, that was also part of the Akitu festival is having like Marduk enter through the gates of Babylon and this whole thing. And so when they took Marduk out, they're like, I guess we'll do it here. And, uh, and like trying to continue that and to kind of assimilate them. Um, yeah. And so that continues to today. Um, so, so like I said, the Chaldeans, eh? They're like there are people, eh? like people who um, also the um, the modern Assyrian community has been exter- has, has been called Chaldeans from externally uh, for several hundred years, um, and I and sort of and Chaldea, uh, same same Babylonia. Roughly. So that also speaks to that continuity of identity and tradition. Um, And so today, Assyrians celebrate Chabad Nisan by holding social events, including parades and parties. Um, Like, you know, Marduk is not a part of it. So like how in like in Iran today, um, most people are Muslim, but they still celebrate like they still like will go to Persepolis uh, for um, for certain holidays uh, like. Noruz or uh, Shahi Shambay, 
Shahari Shambe, thank you, um, mm-hmm. that are Zoroastrian, that were originally Zoroastrian, yeah. and still are Zoroastrian for those who observe Zoroastrianism, but it's something that sort of transcends that original religious element and is is a, is a cultural and like identity, um, like community based Redef- thing, redefining, yeah, yeah, yeah. and or so not, like uh, re it, reasserting, yeah, it, it takes on a, it takes on a new a a, a new uh, layer of meaning. Um, and so that, that's how folks are still having, they, they still, they still observe this, this holiday that was originally with like a polytheistic, um, like Iron Age religion. And they can still be, um, they can still they made be it work. Like monotheistic Christians. Like it's, it's, it, yeah. it, it, it isn't, um, They're it isn't dissonant. Like it, yeah. it, it is, it's, a, it has another meaning. Um, and and so they like gather in clubs and social institutions and these these places of like these these uh, sort of nodes of of um, of congregation of and like cultural social congress yeah Ew. um and so they they listen to poets who recite the story of creation and folks wear uh, traditional clothing um, and dance and parks and they just like party and have a great time um, and it's also a tradition to hold a parade that goes down King Sargon Boulevard in Chicago Illinois it's a great place to have it um, and it's, um, traditional in Assyrian villages. So Sargon's uh, boats are docked at the key sides of the, chi- the Chicago, the Illinois oh, river. The Lake, Lake Michigan. Yeah. There we go. That's better. <laughs> um, and so, um, in like, in what's now Iraq and Syria in these, in Assyrian villages, um, girls would gather flowers and herbs, which they suspend from the, from the house's roof. Um, and the bunches are referred to as uh, Dekna de Nisan, which means like the beard of spring, um, which herby, herby little beard. Yeah. So just like this, what this um, So it's it's just like a another like spring based holiday. And so I, there will be more show notes on, on those. So things. many show notes. So many show notes, because that is one thing I, you, you know, you can count on me for. But but yeah, so that's sort of like 3000 years of. Uh, people not being Asher Benipal, and some who are. Just a couple, though. Yeah. Well, that I learned a lot in those <laughs> approximately two hours. Um, and listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will be back next week in your ears with new content, which you can find uh, anywhere you find your podcasts. And hey, while you're over there finding podcasts, Me? you could leave us a review. Uh, and some stars, if you would. That would be great. Please, and units um, of five. Yep, units of five. You can find us on Facebook, where we are at The Dirt Podcast. You can find us over on Twitter, where the we're at Dirt Podcast. Anna's at Anna Goldfield. I am at Amber Dextrous. And you can find us on the on the gram. You can do it for the gram, as the Bucky's oh, billboard I saw yesterday said. Um, and, and you can oh. do it. At the Dirt Pod. Yep. And all of that, plus all of our back episodes on the Archaeology Podcast Network and merch and educational supplementary materials and all of our show notes are at our website, thedirtpod.com. This was this was great. Thanks. My brain is full. I had a lot of nightmares this week because it brought back a lot of memories. Oh, I'm sorry. 
It's fine. It was well, a vacation well spent. <laughs> also, I conservatively spent like two thirds of my vacation sleeping, so there was plenty of opportunity. So, well, okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We love we'll, you. We'll holler at you next week. Yep. Bye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.